ever since the church's inception in 1993. And I have preached on related subjects because God's Word intersects with many different social issues, not only the issue of the sanctity of human life. Um, and so today we're going to be looking at the issue of social justice versus biblical justice. And the term social justice might sound like an innocuous term. It sounds like a good thing, but words have meaning. And so therefore we have to understand what the true meaning of these terms are. We have to understand the accurate definitions of these various terms associated with social justice and, in fact, that term itself. And so if you had to encapsulate all of the social issues out there, especially those that intersect with the Word of God, it's really important, I think, to look at them in terms of three categories. Uh, the first category is the issue of life, the issue of human life. That, of course, includes the issue of abortion, but it also includes the issue of euthanasia and end-of-life issues. Secondly, I categorize another grouping under love. So I have lo a life, and then love would be issues uh, that define human relationships. For example, what does God say about the definition of marriage and family? What about the definition of our sexes or genders and all the issue of transgenderism and so on that has permeated our society in really just the last seven to ten years? So that's the second category. So you have life, then you have love, but then you also have liberty as well. And liberty is important because that gives us the freedom to believe and live out what we believe in the first two categories. So religious liberty is a very important issue. In fact, in the last 10 to 20 years, there's been a great movement to begin to trim back and limit religious liberties. And so even Berkeley Bible Church last year, uh, that lawsuit that legal action that we took against the federal government ended in a victory for us. And so we've been involved in the front lines in that battle to maintain our liberties. Those liberties, after all, were fought for by the blood of our soldiers beginning with the American Revolution. And so they are rare in our world, and actually they're becoming rarer. And so therefore those liberties that we have need to be maintained and not just carelessly disregarded. And so you could take those three topics or three categories, life, love, and liberty, and encapsulate just about all of the social issues that intersect with the Word of God. But by far the most urgent topic is God's view of human life, because if you don't have life, well, then you can't have the second two. And so God creates and sustains human life. Satan seeks to destroy it. It's a very... Simple couple sentences, but they are nonetheless chock full of truth. God creates human life and sustains it, and Satan seeks to destroy it. Abortion is not reproductive health care. That is a euphemism that seems to come from the book 1984. It is Newspeak. It is not reproductive health care. There's nothing at all to do with health care regarding abortion because one person always dies and the other person sometimes dies as well but is at least emotionally broken. So abortion is not reproductive health care. This is really a massive historical conflict. History is filled with the deaths of the innocents. Canaanites 
sacrificed children to the god Molech. Pharaoh slaughtered Hebrew boys. Herod killed Jewish boys in and around Bethlehem. Aristotle and Plato advocated abortion to stem overpopulation. It's nothing new. It's always been around. But what is God's view of human life? Well, Psalm 139 really seems to summarize it very well in a brilliant way. The psalmist reports, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. What a great summary of God's view of human life. Life is, after all, continuous. Life does not begin at birth, but rather science and Scripture report that life really begins in the womb, maybe even before conception, since God knew Jeremiah before he created him. In Luke chapter 1, John the Baptist responded while he was still in his mother Elizabeth when he heard his Aunt Mary's voice. Exodus chapter 20 tells us that you shall not murder. It's the sixth commandment. Exodus 21 reports that injury to a child shows equal value to that of mature adults. That if you hurt a baby in the womb, the penalty is equal to that of a mature adult. And then it's topped off by 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, where the Apostle Paul tells the church of Corinth that you are not your own. It is not your body. Even your own body is not yours. You are a steward of your body. But your body belongs to the Lord who created it. Totally different worldview. Where does our value as human beings come from? Well, we handle that during the Lord's table. It's created by God in his image. We have similar emotions, will, and intellect, though not nearly as deep as our Lord or as accurate. But yet, nonetheless, we have those capacities just like him. We were bought also at a great price that he who was without sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. He didn't just create us. He also recreated us, you could say, because he loved us so much and wanted to relate to us. Even though he didn't need us, he did it anyway. Medical evidence of life beginning in the womb is overwhelming. 20 days of discernible heartbeat. 40 days discernible brain waves. Eight weeks, all of the bodily systems, the circulatory, the digestive, everything else, the nervous system are there. They're not fully developed yet. But after eight weeks, after conception, all of the bodily systems are present. And after 12 weeks, just four weeks later, all of those bodily systems are functioning. Roe versus Wade was thankfully reversed with the Dobbs decision on June 24, 2022. But Roe v. Wade and its accompanying judgment on the same day in January 1973 did a lot of damage. Doe versus Bolton took away all restrictions, any restrictions to abortion. So for a long time, until some restrictions were put in place, the United States of America had abortion that was legal in all nine months of pregnancy for any reason. Even countries in Europe only go up to 20 weeks. And so today, we're left with a patchwork of the state's about half 
either eliminating abortion or severely restricting it, the other half actually celebrating and advertising that abortions are legal here in all nine months for any reasons. And so we have a divided country. There are many other social issues, certainly. There's human trafficking, there's poverty, homosexuality, transgenderism, slavery that is becoming more and more prevalent in our world. You wouldn't think so. We think about that horrible institution of American slavery, and that's gone, but yet slavery is springing up in so many other nations of the world. Racism is still out there, certainly. Child labor, religious liberty, these are all social issues with which Scripture oftentimes intersects. In recent years, though, the term social justice has been used to describe the effort to bring relief to suffering. And we think social justice, well, we like society, it's people, and then certainly we're all for justice. So the term social justice must be a really good thing, right? Well, not necessarily so. The social justice is packed with a meaning that has damaged and diluted the effectiveness of biblical Christianity, even in our day and age. Biblical justice does not equal social justice. Let's define biblical justice first. What is God's view? What is his perspective of justice and injustice? Well, it really all begins with God himself as the standard of right and wrong. Scripture tells us that he is our rock. He is, his works are perfect. And all his ways are just. Upright and just is he. He is a faithful God who does no wrong. And so since God desires to communicate his will to humanity, his commands in Scripture reflect his just and righteous attitude. Deuteronomy 15.11 says, There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. So God's view of justice really begins with his own character, and then he communicates it to his people in the Old Testament, Israel, New Testament, the church. And so he wants us to respond. He wants us to do something. First, he wants us to know him because it begins with his character, but it doesn't end there. It continues on and should also influence our behavior and our attitudes as well. And so because just, God is just and righteous, he calls us to reflect those same qualities in all of the things that we do. Isaiah 117 says, Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. We're studying Micah. In fact, next week we'll wrap up the book of Micah. Isaiah was his contemporary. It's very possible they even knew each other. And Isaiah communicates to the people of Israel that there are people who are oppressed. And as I've mentioned before that, you know, we throw that term around, oppression and persecution, like we really know what it is, but we really, unless you lived in a developing nation, but if you grew up in the United States or another wealthy nation, you do not know what oppression is. You do not know it. But the people in Israel knew what oppression was because there was no one to appeal to. And so many of the rich stole people's land and their inheritance. When you steal 
the land of an Israelite man, you steal his identity, you take everything from him. And that was true oppression. Then we jump to the New Testament and we see the same idea translates also into the New Testament. And James 5.4 says this, he says, Look, the wages you fail to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. And so whether they be widows, whether they be orphans, whether they be workers who already did the job for you, you need to be just and fair and honest with them. You need to be ethical to those people. You need to take care of them because they are needy. That's your obligation, and that is the, the characteristics of the God that you follow. So therefore, you need to change your attitude and also change your behavior as a result of knowing this wonderful creator, sustainer God. But then, of course, we would be remiss if we didn't bring up Micah 6.8, which we looked at a few weeks ago. But hey, since we just studied it, let's remind ourselves what Micah says. And he is the blue-collar prophet. He's the one who talked against true oppression. And he said this. He says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And remember, a few weeks ago when we studied this particular passage of Scripture, that in order to do those things really well, we can't do those things through the flesh. It requires a rebirth spiritually. And then I can do those things through the enabling power of the, of the third person who indwells me, the Holy Spirit. And then I have a shot at acting justly of acting ethically in a consistent way because it's now part and parcel of my identity as a Christian. So I will be more likely to act justly, reflecting what God has done inside of me already, and to love mercy. And that word mercy there is has said, which means faithful, loyal, loving kindness. And, you know, when we declared our independence against God, we forgot how to love. We became selfish and twisted and demented, even dead in our spirits. We died spiritually. So we would never do this naturally. We can only do it supernaturally. And so therefore, he commands, has said from us, now, since I know Christ, he came, and he not only taught me what love, us, love is through example, but he also gave me the enabling power to love. So now I have a shot at being able to do these things because I've been born again. So God doesn't want empty sacrifice. He doesn't just want ritual. He still wants the sacrifices. He still wants the rituals. But put your heart in it. And this is the behavior that he wants to see from us, to act justly and to love mercy, has said faithful, loyal, loving kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And so let there be a conspicuous fellowship where it is so obvious that you are walking with the Lord that you're not trying to impress people through your flesh. You're, you're, you're ministering and living and walking through the overflow of your vibrant relationship with the Lord, that he's your source of your security. He's your source of your value. He's the primary relationship. And so the greater that you get to know him, the more naturally you will live and walk and serve through this overflow, and you'll have a conspicuous fellowship with God. It'll be so obvious that if you were in the court of law, you'd be convicted of being a Christian. And so walk humbly with your God. These are some of the great characteristics of what biblical justice communicates to the Old 
and the New Testament as well. See, words do matter. They make a difference. Definitions are important. The term social justice means something quite different than biblical justice does. And we've got to know the difference. That is imperative. That's important to maintain the purity and effectiveness of the biblical church. See, in the Old Testament, the prophets, they warned of worshiping the false gods. And they named them by name. Molech and Baal and all the others. Do not worship them. In the New Testament, the apostles warned against falling to the false teaching of Gnosticism or legalism or licentiousness. And today, one of many heresies can be presented, but today we focus on the heresy, the falsehoods of social justice. To inoculate the church with truth, so that way we can maintain our effectiveness and understand the heart of our God. So words do matter. The term social justice means something quite different than biblical justice. So what is social justice then? And where in the world did this thing come from? William Young gives a good working definition of it. He says, social justice is the state redistribution of advantages and resources to disadvantaged groups to satisfy their rights to social and economic justice. That's a starting point to understand what social justice is. To God, justice is a law and heart issue for individuals. Social justice is for groups. Social justice, to put it quite plainly and simply, has strong Marxist roots. No conspiracy theory. I mean, even the proponents will say this, so I'm not trying to prove a point or anything. You see, Marxism does not see the main problem of the human experience as human sin. In fact, they are naturalists, meaning they are not supernaturalists. And so the problem that they see is the hegemony or power of the haves over the have-nots. They see the main problem of the human experience not as human individual sin, but rather the power structure of society, the unjust and unequal distribution of wealth and power. Normally when we talk about Marxism, we think about money and finances, but there's also such a thing as cultural Marxism. It ultimately winds up talking about dollars and cents. But now, cultural Marxism begins at a different place. You see, Marxism seeks to upturn and overturn society and then rebuild it with the characteristics of the Communist Manifesto. All this, thing, all this is out there. They publish it. They're not trying to be coy or hidden. They're, they're very open about what they believe. They're pretty articulate with it, too. It's just that they're dead wrong. So there are 30 or 40 different characteristics in the Communist Manifesto of what they want society and culture to be like, but I'm just going to give you five. First of all, they want God and religion to be eliminated because they believe it's all false, and it also they don't want to share power with God. The second characteristic is the elimination of 
the family in its current form. Third, there is no such thing as private property or land. Fourth, there is no inheritance because all the money would go to the state. And then fifth, the state owns all and operates all the means of production. That's what Marxism teaches. See, social justice does not seek equality of opportunity, but rather equity of outcome. So when you hear the term equity, it does not mean equality of opportunity. Those are two completely different things. The, The definitions of words really matter. We use a lot of the same terms, but we have completely different definitions. That's so true of biblical Christianity compared also to the cults. They use the same terms, but they have wildly different definitions of what those terms mean. And the same thing with social justice. Very different terms. Equity does not equal equality. So equality, from the way that we normally see it, is that everyone takes the entrance exam to get into medical school, and then all of the people who score in the top 5 or 10 or 20%, whatever whatever gauge that that particular university is using, they would be given admission to medical school. That's equality of opportunity. Everybody can take the test, but not everybody is going to pass or pass well enough to be able to get into medical school. But the view of equity is completely different, meaning the outcome of the exam is tuned to make sure that every particular group, usually ethnic groups, get an equal proportion to who gets in. So how you perform on the medical exam is not the most important thing. The most important thing is what ethnic group are you in. So then you have an equal representation of Hispanics and blacks and Asians and whites. Okay. That's a difference between equality and equity, given that example. What is the mission of social justice? Well, there are four aspects or four parts of the mission of social justice. The first, the first is to identify disadvantaged groups. And in a lot of your corporations, and in the first service, I had people going like this, you know, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Many, many corporations have people in charge of that, or departments, not just corporations, but also universities and other nonprofits as well. So you, dis, you identify the disadvantaged groups, and then you also have a different concept called intersectionality. Maybe you've heard of this before, because some people are members of different disadvantaged groups, and so You could have a person, I'm not picking on anybody here, but you could have a person who's a lesbian, who's female, who's an atheist, and also Hispanic, and that person would represent four different disadvantaged groups from a social justice perspective. And so that person would be given really good treatment and be advanced from their perception from the bottom of the totem pole to closer to the top. So first, you identify disadvantaged groups. Secondly, you assess current group outcomes, meaning how bad are things, how unequitable are things right now in our country, our company, our state, whatever entity it is, you assign current group outcomes. And then thirdly, you assign blame for inequitable outcomes. So you find out who's the bad guy and then make them pay for it. And this is where we get the idea for reparations and things like that today. 
So you redistribute the resources as the fourth level. Things are redistributed in an equitable way. So then the question is, like, well, how does this affect the church, especially the evangelical church, especially in America? How has this affected the church? And personally, I've been in a number like of debates and arguments with other evangelical pastors. Some of some I went to seminary with who are like really caught up in this stuff. Some of you are presently at Bear Creek Bible Church, I would say at least partially because of hearing this from the pulpits at your former churches. And so this has has, uh, permeated the evangelical church. I have a lot of theories as to why. One is because it seems like, and also from the sources that I read, Everything has become a social justice issue. Whatever is inequitable, whenever there is inequity, there is social justice waiting to try to even everything out. And that also happens inside the church. All different topics become social justice topics. For example, climate change becomes climate justice. Healthcare becomes a human right. Should we give healthcare? Of course, we. No one should be denied healthcare. The issue is how you pay for it. But they see it as a human right, which is a totally different category. The refugee migrant crisis, the supposed causes of gun violence, food insecurity—all these terms are morphed to better be used under the banner of social justice. One pastor, Vadi Bachman, I got this illustration from him. I got him credit for it. It's a good one. It's kind of like the church sees all of these issues. It's kind of like a, all these issues are like a big train. There's different boxcars, and each one is a different boxcar. Christians should despise racism because it is a sin from the pit of hell. But then a lot of Anglo-Caucasian people have, have this kind of like white guilt. And so we automatically kind of are very sensitive to being called a racist or someone insinuating that we're racist. And so what we're going to do is be especially motivated to get on the anti-racist boxcar, you know, because we kind of feel guilty about it because we're told to feel guilty. And we're really nice people, and we want, to, we want to exude mercy and grace. And so we're going to get into that boxcar really fast. But what we don't realize is there's a whole bunch of other boxcars attached to that one. And that's how a lot of evangelical Christians get caught up into this. Because then you have the gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender boxcar. And you have the climate justice boxcar. And... The issues that cause, supposed issues that cause gun violence boxcar, and you get caught up into this. There are some evangelical churches that actually use these terms on their websites. I mean, they're not ashamed of it. They've been so entrapped by these particular topics. See? And it turns out that um, many on the political left also would consider us as the oppressors simply by the fact that we're Christians. doesn't matter what ethnic group you're part of. We are 
experiencers of Christian privilege. Did you know that? We have Christian privilege. The biggest oppressors, of course, are white, male, hetero, able-bodied, cisgender Christians. And so you're looking at one of them. So I'm like, I'm sorry. (laughs) Cisgender is a new term for you go by the gender that you were born with. It's kind of a bulky way of saying it, but that's the way they're communicating it now. And so we have Christian privilege. And so you can even see reports uh, over the past few years where Christians are singled out by various federal agencies um, for investigation and so on because we use, might use certain terms in our banking. And so social justice has infected the evangelical church. It really in its, is in its heart cultural Marxism. So what's the difference? How do we articulate the difference between biblical justice and social justice? And you take pictures of this if you want. You can use it in your teaching. I, I made it so you have complete privilege to whatever you want to do with it. But let's just make sure we understand the differences between God's view of justice and the Marxist view of social justice. First of all, the focus, as I already mentioned, in biblical justice is that it's God to the individual. I don't care who you are, you need to walk humbly with God and need to be merciful and need to live out justice. But social justice sees groups, oppressed groups and oppressor groups. That's what they focus on. That's where we get in our country today, the issue of identity politics. Everything's grouped together to put one group against another. We're no longer Americans. We're members of different subgroups, almost like tribes, you could say. The root reason for the human condition from a biblical viewpoint is simply sin. Uh, It's simple, but it really runs deep in us. Our hearts are depraved. So there is sin. But social justice sees the root problem as something completely different. It's the imbalance of power and resources. It's not a vertical issue. It's horizontal. It's the way the society is structured. So that all needs to be upended so that way something much better a utopia can be built. Yeah, how well has that worked out? The presenting problem that we see, that we experience from a Christian or even a Jewish perspective is a disregard and neglect for people who are truly oppressed or people who are truly downtrodden. And so we have a lot of poor people of every ethnic group. And so the issue is not what group they're a member of, but just their condition. And Christians need to respond to that. We're ordered, we're commanded to respond to that. But rather the presenting problem that they see and experience is systemic oppression. That's just the way our culture rolls, you see, from their perspective. The solution from a biblical justice perspective is real simple. It's deep. It's complicated. It's other-centeredness. It's benevolent other-centeredness. It's love. And we forgot how to love, but Jesus taught us how to love. The enabling power to love is inside of you now if you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, and you also have the best example in Jesus himself of someone who loved and gave himself up for us. But the answer here is not love. It's really just forced redistribution of 
privileges and resources. The goal really is equality of opportunity from a Christian perspective in his or her country or culture. We're called to be salt and light. Our founding fathers did a brilliant job in this. And they were all coming. Most of them were coming from a biblical worldview. In fact, 52 of the 56, I believe, went to seminary. They had a well-educated biblical worldview. They studied the Magna Carta. They understood Scripture. And so all of these ideas, also from the Enlightenment, came to them. And they created the Constitution of the United States of America. And then that Constitution has also been generally followed and applied up until recent years. There's some exceptions. But there's no other country like this. I'll tell you, I do a lot of traveling, you know, to other countries, and that has actually made me more patriotic. I'm not arrogant about it. It's just, it makes me humble. It's like, wow, we get to live here. Because peep, the countries that I go to, those people are telling me, wow, you're so blessed to live there. Really? I didn't really realize that. So the most patriotic people, a lot of them are immigrants. <laughs> in fact, with, with, with our tennis group, um, I remember a couple of years ago, the... Keller High School band was playing our national anthem, and this one man who immigrated from, I think he came from India, he put down his racket and went like this. All the other people were like, oh, what, what, what? oh, yeah, national anthem, oh, okay, you know. <laughs> so they, they, they know what it's like. And so something really good happened here. Equality of opportunity happened. I mean, my grandparents, all four of them, were immigrants who came here. And they were really poor. And they came, and they worked in American factories, and they entered the middle class. Each generation got better. No other country like that. Equality of opportunity, and so you create a better society. And that can happen. And it's happened in other countries, too. Maybe not to the degree it's happened here, but there are other really good countries, too, that have given a lot of Equality of opportunity, a meritocracy, where if you work hard, if you study hard, chances are you're going to do okay. But social justice celebrates equity of outcome. See. What about the short and the long result? Well, the short result from a biblical justice viewpoint is when we love people, when we show mercy to them, we love on them, we give them the gospel. And change them from the inside out. See? So you get spiritual rebirth. But the long-term build-out is the millennial kingdom, where there will be a theocratic monarchy. King Jesus will rule, and it will be perfect government. That's not going to happen in this day and age, so we are not teachers of Christian nationalism which a lot from the progressive side of the political spectrum are claiming that all evangelical Christians want Christian nationalism, meaning they want to force Christianize everybody in America. And, you know, I've never met a Christian nationalist. But yet they say that that's what we are. But we're not. That'll happen at a future time. For now, the short-term result, hopefully, of, of following biblical justice is spiritual rebirth, but then social justice 
wants an upending and overthrow of the current order of things and bringing on ultimately a socialist utopia, which has never happened. Ask people who lived in the Soviet Union or Venezuela or Cuba how well that's worked out. It didn't. And so, then finally, how should social or how should we be involved in social issues? And I invite you to turn your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Mark chapter 2, because Jesus teaches us here exactly what to do and which order of priority and what our short-term and long-term goals are. In Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 5, this is what happened. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, and so a paralytic had been brought to Jesus, and Jesus didn't just go ahead and heal him. Jesus said an interesting thing to him. He said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the man was like, oh, well, you know, I'd really like to be healed of my paralysis, but thanks for forgiving my sin. But then the teachers of the law intervened. Some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone, only God can forgive sins. Only God could heal supernaturally. So Jesus was, in essence, calling himself God. He was claiming deity here. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? See, I mean... From Mark's perspective, Jesus was also proving he was God here because he was omniscient. He knew what they were thinking. Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. But that you may know. But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. These actions are equally impossible to man. We cannot forgive sins, and we cannot supernaturally heal anyone. However, a person cannot verify his claim to forgive sins. It's unverifiable. You could say those words to me, that, John, I forgive you of all of your sins, and I can't verify if you've done that or not. But his claim to be able to heal paralysis, that is verifiable. Either he does it or he doesn't do it. The scribes therefore assumed that the claim to heal paralysis was the greater claim. But Jesus chose to do what they considered harder, which was to heal, 
in order to show that he could also do what they considered easier, which was not verifiable, but that was to forgive. So he did the verifiable thing to prove the non-verifiable thing. He did the harder thing to prove the easier thing, in essence. He did the miracle which they could see that they might know that he had done the other one that they could not see. And when you and I move about the face of the earth and we're thinking about following the commands of God to show mercy, to do justice, and to walk humbly, you and I go to people who are hurting emotionally, physically, psychologically, whatever, spiritually, whatever it might be. And so we do good things to them. We feed. We show compassion. We even listen, which is kind of a borderline miracle for our culture. We actually absorb what they're saying, and we listen to them. If you want to do a miracle, listen to people and actually give questions back and engage them. People are hungering for that. They want to be understood more than anything else. And so we do whatever we do, whatever it is that is merciful to others, and um, they feel understood, they feel accepted, they feel cared for because they truly are. And then they're open to hearing the gospel. See? So we go to Mexico to build houses. We don't go, we do not go to Mexico to build houses. We go to Mexico to build houses so that God is glorified. Two completely different mission statements. The one is, first one is Habitat for Humanity, not criticizing it. They're a humanitarian organization doing great work. That's great. A lot of people are homeless. They need houses. That's good. But that's not what we do. We build houses so that God is glorified. Whenever I participated in one of the house building trips, I would always like, and we got done and we were dedicating the house, I'd always pound on the wall. And I was always hoping, man, I hope that wall stands up. My fist doesn't go through it. But I know that Neil or Kyle or Jamie built it or whoever, and, and it's like it's solid. So I could bang on the wall. I say, this is a physical reminder that God loves you. I'm glad they got a house, but... I want them more than anything else. And in particular, well, they're, they're believers anyway, but the neighbors are always listening in. Who are all of these North Americans? Who are all these white people here? Others who, who, who are building houses for these people. So they're curious. And the Mexicans actually participated in building the houses too, so it's not like we did all the work, but we provided the financing to buy the components, and so therefore it got built. And so God is glorified. God loves you. There's no doubt about it because i just got a house and it came from god through christians but it came from god but we don't go to mexico to build houses we go to mexico to build houses to glorify and reveal god amen yeah see totally different mission statements one is habitat the other one's bear creek and a lot of other people as well and so that is what we're called to do. We don't go to Christ Haven just to drop food off. Um, we don't go to Mercy House to just, you know, bring diapers and formula and so on over there. We do those things, 
But it's so that those people, those moms in a crisis pregnancy or those kids in foster care, will know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the build-out. That's the goal. It's a means to an end. And I've been on both extremes, you know. Church I grew up in was a good church, doctrinally speaking, and so on. And and uh, they were like, oh, we can't do, you know, we can't care about people's physical needs because we're all about the gospel. And so there was, there was a group of people who were like, oh, well, we really need to get a, a van or a car or something because some of our seniors, they, they're too frail to drive, but they need to go to the grocery store, so we want to do this. And the elders said, nope, nope, we're only about preaching the gospel. You just missed a big opportunity there. Then on the other extreme, too, I've also been parts of Christian organizations where it's all about just showing love to people, but there is never, ever the conveyance, the delivery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. And by simple faith, you can have eternal life and be forgiven of your sins. See, all this other infrastructure is this the delivery system for ultimately the conveyance of the gospel. It has to be that way. Are we on the same page there? Are we tracking? So are we good with that? Yeah. So, so we are called to be merciful. We are called to be just. We are called to walk humbly with God. But by using God's standard of justice, it has to be with His reasons, His means, and ultimately His goals. We must be salt and light. We must be compassionate, but all of our actions must be always intricately linked to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that there is this rich tradition of in the Old Testament, the prophet, in the New Testament, the apostle, and in our day and age, the preacher this rich tradition of inoculation against falsehood. And I think we just did that here. And so help, uh, help us, Father, to understand things, not so we can be critical of other groups or people. Let's not camp there. But rather so that we can be finely tuned to know what it is that you want us to do. So thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for its uh, correcting nature. Thank you for its ability to stimulate and encourage and inspire us to do the right thing. So we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.